Well, I don't feel that way now, but initially climbing was a necessary evil, no question about it. I mean, we were diehard skiers and I mean, ski mountaineering really wasn't even a concept when we were little kids. We'd go and climb in our alpine gear and, and we'd get to the end of a, a fall and the lips on our ski boots would be just completely worn out and dad was a ski rep but we've developed as 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 mountaineers because obviously you got to climb those peaks to to get to the skiing and so now it's a blend of the concept earning your turns and earning your turns is the climbing part pulling all the gear and everything but um it's always been worth it even as little kids we were strong endurance athletes and of course john callahan was an olympic cross-country skier and so we blended that gift of endurance with that that love of, of skiing and here we are today hi i'm chris whiteout welcome to living it the podcast where we join experts in the experience of being human be bold say yes to adventure say yes to living it Welcome to Chris Waddell Living It, where we talk with experts in the experience of being human. Today, we have Mike Moralt, who has skied numerous, climbed and skied numerous 8,000 meter peaks. Yes, that should sound absolutely crazy to you. It looks amazing. I want to figure out how he does it and why he does it. But then also, for somebody who has looked into the face of death, how much humility has become a big part of his life and giving back to other people. Mike, thanks so much for joining us. Oh, I'm honored to, to, to be here joining you. Thank you. So we were talking just before we came on, how many 8,000 meter peaks have you climbed and skied? Well, we've been on about a half dozen. Um, but really, I think when you're, when you're, when I look back on on my career, the you know we started when we were uh, uh, twelve years old here in Aspen. My dad dragged us out into the back back country, and um, then you know when I really got serious after growing up in the Elk Mountains here in Aspen, you know, in about nineteen eighty, in the late eighties, we started to venture out to the Pacific Northwest, and then we did several expeditions up into the ice fields of Alaska on those beastly peaks. Then we went to South America and got a, a really good flavor of altitude on, on a bunch of 6,000 meter peaks there. And then we started to, after about 10 years, venture into the, the Himalaya. And it's kind of a, a, a funny situation because we were never really great self-promoters and so we, we didn't even really keep track of, of the list. And, and I wrote a book a couple of years ago and the editor said, well, we, we need to get a list of all the expeditions. And I mean, we've been on expeditions to about 60 peaks in the 5,000 to 8,000 meter range. And we never kept track. You know, we took pictures and later I started to, to do films on it. So I had the footage, but I started to compile this list and that's a long time. I mean, that's, you know, from the, the late 80s till, till now. It, it, I always tell people it would be like telling a really passionate golfer to go back and recount their, you know, great golfing trips or fishing trips or something. And I get done and I wake up in the middle and I don't oh, got I completely forgot about that expedition to Peru. But it's, it's just under expeditions to just under 60. And our Claim to fame is not necessarily the 8,000 meter peaks. It's really 5,000 meters 
you know, 18,000 feet through the 8,000 meter peak. So it, it's been an expedition or two, sometimes three every year for, you know, 25 to 30 years. Right, exactly. So you've been, you've been skiing from like six, 16,000 feet to like, to like 25,000 feet. So 5,000 meters is 16,000 feet, right? Yeah, yeah, just over 16,000. And then 8,000 meters is 20, uh, uh, 26,000, roughly 300 feet. Yeah, you know, and it's been a, a labor of love. And it's just been, it, it, we, we never set out to be famous or to be the best. And even today at 57, I mean, even not considering, you know, some of the accomplishments that we've had, I still look up to people. And um, that's kind of an interesting aspect, you know, as I wrote the book, I mean, it, if anybody ever wants to, to, to get a, a, a good flavor of who they were and, and who they are now, write a book. Because the, 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 the notion of looking at the overall arc and looking how I changed, not only as a, a, a ski mountaineer, but as a person, really becomes evident. And it's, um, it, it's, it's been an interesting journey, but it's been a lot of fun. And it's, it's always climbing for us, for my brother. My, my two main partners are Jim Guile and my identical twin, Steve. It's always been about just, it's really the, 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 the title of the book is Natural Progression because it really was a natural progression. It was get done with the peaks and the Alps and maybe take it up to Rainier. And, you know, then when we had a few trips under our belt up to the Pacific Northwest, it was like, I think we can handle Denali. And then we got a flavor for altitude on Denali because it's 20,000 feet, 6,000 meters. And then we started to take it into South America. And eventually it was just a zillion little steps to give us confidence. And, and we always stayed within that envelope of, of safety, but continued to slowly push it into the, the 5,000 meter peaks and the 6,000 and the 7,000 meter peaks and, and ultimately to the 8,000 meter peaks. And when you started in the Elk Mountains with your, with your brother and with your twin brother, with your older brother, with John Callahan, with some of these other people, with Pat Callahan, who actually went to school with me, uh, did you, were you excited to go? Like when your father first said, okay, let's, let's go. And we're going to hike some of these things and ski. Were you like, we have chairlifts for that. Why do we need to hike? What? Well, initially, initially it was in, in, in the late seventies when we were 12 years old, dad, one day at the, at the dinner table, it was July 3rd. And he said, guys, go put your ski gear. And it was just our Alpine gear. Go put your ski gear in the station wagon. He kind of looked at him like, well, what in the hell is dad got going now? And he said, we're going skiing in the morning. So we were not terribly excited at that point. It was getting up at, you know, four in the morning. And, you know, we got in the car and of course we fell asleep and he drove us up to Independence Pass just east of Aspen. And I'm telling you, when I got out of that car and I saw the sun coming up and I saw that magnetic, magnetic colored hue in the sky and dad said just think marlis my sister and mom are you know we looked towards aspen it was still dark he said they're asleep and we were up there and that was when the seeds of what i wanted to do were planted because from that point on it was just we couldn't get enough 
And, and then when we, he took us up to Montezuma Basin and a couple other places. Then when we were 16, he fixed up this old Willys Jeep, a 48 Willys Jeep. And from the time that we got our driver's license, it was just pure passion. It was just, we could not get enough. And we still skied a lot. And, you know, we were all ski racers and everything, but we just could not get enough. And so it was always skiing though, too, is part of it. So in your, in your movie, what is it that you said in your movie that, that, that climbing a mountain is just, is just pain and suffering and a bad meal if you don't get to ski? That the skiing's the payoff? Is, is that, do you still feel that way? Well, I don't feel that way now, but initially skiing was a necessary evil or climbing was a necessary evil. No question about it. I mean, we were diehard skiers and we, you know, for a long time, I mean, ski mountaineering really wasn't even a concept when we were little kids, but um, it was all about the skiing and it was all about initially we'd go and climb in our alpine gear and, and we'd get to the end of a, a fall and the lips on our ski boots would be just completely worn out and dad was a ski rep so we you know we always had access to gear and everything but it was 100 percent about the skiing and even today it's definitely about the skiing but we've developed as 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 mountaineers because obviously you got to climb those peaks to to get to the skiing and so now it's a blend of you know, the, the, the concept earning your turns and, and, and earning your turns is the climbing part, hauling all the gear and everything, but um, it's always been worth it. And it, it's a blending of endurance. We were always, you know, strong endurance, even as little kids, we were strong endurance athletes. And of course, uh, John Callahan was an Olympic cross country skier. And so we blended that gift of endurance with that, that love of, of skiing. And here we are today. So you make it sound relatively simple. The gift of endurance going up with the love of skiing. But when you go up to altitude, you have far less oxygen. So you get effectively stupid up there. I mean, you're jittering. You're trying to click into your skis. They obviously have not groomed this mountain. The, the conditions are not great. And then you have a pack on. And how much do these packs weigh? Is this 30, 40, 50 pounds? You've got beaners hanging off. You've got ice picks. You've got, you know, all this stuff. And then you're going to ski with all this stuff on. So yeah, how hard is it to actually ski with all of your mountaineering gear? Well, you, you acclimate to it just like anything when you do it enough. But, um, you know, it brings up a good point. I mean, there's a huge difference between how a mountaineer approaches one of those high peaks and how a ski mountaineer approaches it. And, and, and the, the pure mountaineer is looking for the aesthetic line up. And we're looking for still to this day, the easiest way to get up those, those peaks so that we can get to the skiing. But when you, you decide that you're gonna be a ski mountaineer and you venture into the, the 5,000 to 8,000 meter range, that extra weight, you know, it's, it's an extra uh, 25 pounds that you've got to get up in addition to all of the other gear, which weighs anywhere from 50 to 75 pounds. And so the way that you do it is you, um, you make a carry with all of the climbing gear and the, the, the food and the fuel and all that stuff. You got to make an extra carry um, to get the ski gear up. And, and so it, it drastically changes the, the approach to the mountain. And it, it, it's just a completely different sport. And it, is it 
Is it more difficult? Well, the, the pure mountaineer would say, well, the routes we climb are difficult, more difficult, and they are. But um, when you have to add that extra 25 pounds of ski gear, every single camp, in some of those mountains, you have two or three camps, um, it really takes a toll, but it's, it's an enormous challenge. And there's a lot of ethics that go into it. You can't allow anybody or a Sherpa to carry your ski gear. And, and for us, you know, we're, we're pure Alpine style climbers. We don't use Sherpa, we don't use oxygen, we don't use altitude drugs or anything. And, and really we do that because that's how we learned how to do it. But as we got into the sport and we started to look at the unwritten ethics of mountaineering and now this whole thing called ski mountaineering, it really became a challenge. And does it make it significantly more difficult? Yeah, I mean, your chances of, of skiing an 8,000 meter peak when you stand at the foot with pure Alpine style are almost zero. I mean, and we've been to a lot of peaks where we didn't get to the summit. Um, and, and it's just a, a different proposition. And, and, you know, there's other elements too, you know, you're climbing in ski boots as opposed to climbing boots and they're not as warm and you can't angulate with your ankles and they're clunky and, 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 um, so it, but it's, it's worth it. And, and it's, it really is earning turns and, and the satisfaction that you get, not even from necessarily skiing off the summit, just skiing in, in, in a, especially the six to 8,000 meter range. It's, I can't tell you how many peaks we've been to where we didn't get to the summit, but we managed to haul the skis up to above 6,000 meters or 7,000 meters and, and skied. And, and Steve, you know, in the book, I quote him, it doesn't matter how bad the trip has gone. It doesn't matter how difficult the trip has gone. When you're in the Himalaya or the Andes and you hear those bindings click, everything is cool. Everything is cool. When you make turns, it doesn't matter how lousy the snow is. It's just, it's, it's, it's a cool feeling. How nerve wracking is it to click in though? Because I mean, you're clicking in, this is steep and, and th this is the problem. We'll get to talking about some of the, some of the movie making, some of the photos and these things, but a camera doesn't, it's hard to get a camera to capture how steep something is. Yeah, it is. It's difficult. You're on some steep stuff and you're clicking in and adverse conditions and one bad turn is really bad, right? Yeah, it's difficult. And it's, um, you know, I was the only guy that carried the, the film stuff. I, I got sucked into filming the, the expeditions in 2000 on Shisha Pangma, which is an 8,000 meter peak that we successfully climbed and skied. And, and for many years, it was, a, it was a major hurdle for me because, you know, they were small handheld cameras, but then you had to carry all the batteries and they didn't have lithium back then. So they would drain really quick. So I was adding another 10, 15 pounds to my load, um, but it became, that became a, a separate passion. And after 2000, I know I haven't shot one still photo on, on an expedition. It's always video. And even if I'm not making a movie, I still take the video camera today it's a lot better because you can go out and get a, a, a GoPro or some of the Sony products that you know you can fit in the palm of your hand and it's a lot easier but as far as the danger factor you know one of the not one of the, the without question the the greatest accomplishment that Steve 
Jim and I have have accomplished is the fact that we've been doing this for you know 30 plus years. And in, in all of those expeditions, um, we've always managed to stay within the, the envelope of, of what is definitively safe. And Steve even says it in Beyond Skiing Everest. He says, when we get to a point in the mountains and we're at the edge and we're not comfortable, it is just, it is just a hard, fast rule. I do not take that step. And, and because we've had that mentality, which is significantly more conservative than a lot of, you know, our contemporaries that are doing it, in, in all of those expeditions, the worst accident that we've had is Pat Callahan froze the tip of his finger and he lost it, which is not great. And it's, it's a, a, a badge of embarrassment for us, but it was early in our careers. And since then, um, I don't know many of my contemporaries that can say, I've never been on an expedition where anybody got seriously hurt and, and more importantly, killed. Um, in the game, it's, it's almost, I don't want to insult people and say it's a badge of honor to be able to say that you've been on an expedition where somebody got killed. It's not, it's horrific, but it's so common that, that when I look back on all those years, you know, and then talking with some people that have looked at our careers, it, it's, it's almost a miracle that nobody has been, um, it's, it's when you look at how many times we put ourselves into those environments. And you got to understand when you get above 6,000 meters, um, the oxygen is thin and it, it, it's, you, you'd never know it in pop culture mountaineering, but when you see all of the lines on Everest and now even K2, um, if those people really honestly knew how close they were to death's door, just an oxygen mask failing, uh, a lot of people wouldn't be up there doing it. So is it dangerous? Yes. But the mentality that we've, we've had has been ultra conservative and, and we've missed a lot of peaks where I know a lot of people would have got, gotten to the top. We've been incredibly fortunate and incredibly lucky. So do you get that adrenaline rush? Yes. Is that part of the reason why you do it? Yes. Um, but clicking into those skis is, is, is definitely always a rush. You always think that you forgot how to ski. You are carrying the heavy weight. It makes it difficult. You're tired too, right? I mean, this is, that's, I was going to say, that's the, the toughest part is that you're so tired that it's utilitarian skiing. And as a filmmaker, it's, it's tough because when you watch my films, you'd think that we were just mediocre skiers. Um, Whereas if you saw Steve or Jim or whatever skiing down the Ridge Bell, I mean, they're good skiers. They're what you would expect for a lifetime skier. Um, but it's tough. And it's, but, but tough doesn't necessarily mean bad. And, you know, the conditions are more often than not tough, but it's satisfying. And, and, and there's, there's, I say satisfying because I don't know how to describe the satisfaction that you get from skiing those peaks all in considering how hard it is to get all the gear up and, and how dangerous it is and not even considering a, a steep slope. I mean, it's just dangerous being in that environment. Frozen back and forth. It's icy. It's crust on top. You don't know what's going on. There can be, how are you, how do you tune your skis to be prepared? 
for the map. You have to, and we bring all the tuning gear and everything because sometimes you hit rocks up there and stuff. But yeah, you you have to have good gear. And and even though I wouldn't consider my career to be a professional career, we've been fortunate with with gear sponsorships and 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 we've always had you know top notch gear, state of the art gear, and we tune it to the hilt. So yeah, you have to have you 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 always have to go in expecting ice, and nine times out of ten you'll get it. So these are race ready, like you you've got like world race ready injected kind of uh, kind of conditions that you're preparing for, and and it's lumpy uh, injected. You know, well, it's, it's yeah, it's it, it, you know, and that brings up a good point because I think back to when we skied Shishapangma, and that was a big feather for us. That was really what catapulted us uh, on, on, on our way because that was the first time an American had skied an 8,000 meter peak. And I, I think back to the quality of the gear, and it, 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 when I say it was state of state of the art, I mean, compared to our GS skis that we would ski on Aspenon, I mean, it was. It was complete and utter crap. And, and, and the, the boots especially were just, they were basically just lousy climbing boots that you could somewhat buckle up and ski. And, and the, the test for, for boots back then was if you could go up and ski down the bumps on the Ridge of Bell, you, you had a chance to be able to ski anything in the Himalaya. But it was, it was always, just unnerving and of course now the gear is much much better but relative to race gear it's still pretty lousy and so so what you're talking about is 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 flex of ski performance of ski you know torsional stiffness and then also like the stiffness of the boots where where one you can still climb in the boots yeah but then you actually have the stiffness to be able to make the ski bend and make it bend who's watching your technique I mean, you you're making some some significant slalom type turns, but you also get across the across the fall line really, really quickly, which I think is probably something that's helpful. <laughs> have you developed a technique to work with the uh, work with the equipment and the shortcomings of the equipment? Yeah, I mean, the, the, the technique that you have on Alpine gear is modified significantly to accommodate it. Even today with the, the increase in technology, um, it's military and skiing. It's not Warren Miller type, you know, point them down, let them rip type skin. And, and it, it just can't be. And, and primarily it can't be because when you get above 6,000 meters, there's an, a, a lag in the time that the breath of oxygen that you take actually gets to the muscles. So you, you, you're, you're stunted mentally, but you're also stunted physically. And um, so you, you have to few turns and you're not concentrating on how good you look, but you are concentrating on, you know, what do I have to do to make sure that the ski bites into the ice? And more importantly, you have to ski really soft because AT bindings do not have the performance that an alpine binding has. And, and the worst thing that can happen is losing a ski because when you're on that hard snow, it's really hard to self-arrest. So it's it's a modified utilitarian type skiing, but it's still skiing. It looks exhausting in some ways to me. So like, so like I, I broke my back skiing 
I came back, I learned how to ski in a monoski. Skiing in a monoski was the most exhausting thing that I could do because I was thinking myself down every inch of the mountain. I was, I was in full conscious thought every single moment. And we're so used to after growing up in the mountain where you make a few turns and you just kind of, okay, we'll just get over there. No big deal. And you haven't really thought for, you know, hundreds of yards potentially. And, but yet there, if you stop thinking, you're potentially done. So, so your heart is going, you're, you're, you're breathing really hard. How tiring is it? And like, how much can you actually ski before you say, okay, I've got to stop here because I need to get back ahead of mentally get back ahead of where I am physically. Yeah, no, that's a really good question because a lot of people, especially a lot of mountaineers think that um, ski eliminates the hardship of down climbing and, and it, it, it doesn't eliminate the hardship. It, it, it's infinitely harder to ski down at those altitudes than it is to, you know, take your skis off and, and down climb. And, and, you know, probably the godfather of, of high altitude skiing, a guy named Hans Kammerlander, he, he, he said it best. He was on K2 and the slope became steep and it became hard. And, 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 and then the whiteout came in and he said, I switched the exhilaration of being on my skis to the safety of my crampons um, and put the skis on the pack. So in short, when the going gets tough in those peaks, when you're skiing, the skis go on the pack. Um, but it's, 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 it's an anaerobic sport skiing and you cannot under any circumstances go anaerobic when you're that high because you're already starved for oxygen. And I had, I, I experienced it on Chishapangma. I, was excited and you know I was young and I was strong and I just started skiing really hard and uh, all of a sudden I couldn't hang on to my pole and what happens is you get high altitude paralysis because when you're using more oxygen than is available in your bloodstream your your body starts producing a lot of acids lactic acid and a lot of acids and the reason it does that is to prevent the muscles from firing so that you start using less oxygen. And, and I just, I couldn't hang, I looked at my hand, I couldn't move it. It was completely paralyzed. And so I started to hyperventilate. I knew what was going on, got more oxygen into my blood. And then I was able to continue, but it was really at a much more moderate pace. And um, it's, we were on a peak, a, a 20,000 foot peak a few years ago with a guy named Mike Maple. And Mike Maple is just phenomenal, was a phenomenal ski racer. And he still uh, is, is a great skier. And we all jumped off the top and he just, he looked like Ingemar skiing down into this basin. And he got down into that basin and just glad we got him off that peak because he just lost it, just completely overexerted and was just, just barely hobbled back into into camp that night so it's it's tough it's it's difficult it has to be because because your first one is shishapanga is that is that the correct pronunciation shishapang yeah shishapangma shishapangma uh because you guys had like a foot of powder on that one didn't you where we did at times yeah on the lower slopes i mean sometimes you know you you, you get blessed with 
with really incredible conditions. That was like Warren Miller. You could just let them roll. You know, you had to be careful of crevasses. You know, the North Ridge of Everest, we skied that in 2003 and it was just, it was just a sheet of ice. It was arguably the stupidest ski descent I've ever made. Got lucky, didn't fall off it. It ended up having a, a great trip. But then we went back in 2007 and we skied that ridge and we had about six inches of um, but even there, Jim was skiing down and there was a picket just below the level of the powder and he skied into that picket and tore his shoulder all the heck. And it, you just have to be extraordinarily careful. There's no ski patrol. There's no rescue. There's, you just, it's skiing and skiing is inherently a dangerous sport and you know that going into it. So you really modify how hard you ski, where you ski. And, and you, you, you really just have to be ultra conservative. What's the opinion of the other people who are climbing the mountain? Do they look at you and go, these guys who are climbing the mountain and skiing are crazy, a liability, or is it cool? Oh, it's absolutely shunned. I mean, on Everest, the, the second year, there was a team of super hardcore Russians climbing the, the North Ridge and, and they just, they came into our camp, went out of their way to just berate us. It's insulting to the mountain. It's putting other people in jeopardy. You're taking risks. You're a small team. What are you going to do if someone gets, you know, just the whole, the, the whole spectrum. And we get that a lot when we go out there. Um, but to their credit, they were climbing up when we were skiing down and they saw that we were not just reckless, you know, point them down, let them go. And, and they were actually impressed. And, and, um, but yeah, it's, it's ski mountaineering is, I, I, I use the analogy when mountain biking and snowboarding started to generate steam there, there, you know, we were the odd ducks, we were the oddballs and, and, and that's, over time, just like it has for snowboarding and mountain biking. But um, yeah, whenever something new comes in, in into the scene, um, it, it's going to be met with a little bit of controversy. The, the irony is, is that there were guys skiing from 7,000 meters back in the 30s, you know, Frank Smythe and Andre Roach, but there just weren't enough of those guys in between the 30s and when we started doing it in the, in the 90s make it ordinary or even something that was common enough to where um, people just let it go. But, but by and large now, I mean, you're seeing a, a lot of people take skis to higher peaks. And um, uh, so it's, it's just the ebbs and flows of the politics of anything new. How did you guys look at yourself when you were first doing it? Did you look at yourself as these brash guys from Colorado mountain town that we're going to conquer because you're looking to do something new on the peak too, right? I mean, it's the first descents, first descents, you know, with oxygen, without oxygen. I mean, there's so many different ways that you climb mountains. So it's climb and then ski. How did you look at yourselves? Well, I mean, that's, that's also a great question because we always took skis to Alaska. We spent several seasons there. You have to have skis or snowshoes there. Then we started to take them to South America, and it was just this natural progression where we love skiing and we knew we wanted to be skiing. Um, and 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 so then in 1997 we 
we went to our first 8,000 meter peak. And that, that was such, you know, we had skied some 6,000 meter peaks and climbed, you know, at those altitudes. But, you know, Broad Peak is one of the 14 8,000 meter peaks. And we made a decision that it was such a big bite at that time in our careers that we were going to leave the skis and just concentrate on climbing. And, and got up on Broad Peak, we saw these snow slopes and I mean, they were just perfect. And, and Steve and I started to just totally regret that we didn't have our skis. And on that trip, uh, a guy named Ed Veesters, who's a, you know, he's, he's a very famous climber. He came in on our permit and he was not a skier at all at the time. And he, he just, he got so sick and tired of listening to us talk about skiing, you know, considering our skis were, you know, 5,000 miles away and, and, and just, Ed is just the nicest, calmest guy. And he just went off on us and he just said, you know, he just berated us. He just said, I can't take it anymore. Then he calmed down and he came back and he said, this is what you guys need to do. You need to plan another expedition to an 8,000 meter peak. Take your skis because I can tell you guys are not going to be satisfied until you go and at least try it. I don't think you can do it, but you're never going to be satisfied unless you try. And so from that point on, Steve and I are just constantly whispering to each other. I think you could be carrying skis right now. Do you think you could ski this slope? And it was just like, hell yes. And, and, and from that point on in 97, we never went to a peak without skis. It was just, we were sold and, and, and we figured out that we could do it. And um, so it, did we think that we were cock dog, hot shot ski mountaineers? No, not even remotely. It was just something that we wanted to do. And we slowly tested the waters, even going to the point of not taking them to a major peak. Um, and so it was always staying within the envelope of what we were comfortable and, 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 and always, even today, like I said, always looking up to some of the guys that have really taken the sport far. I, I, I still have, I mean, Hans Kommermund, I still look up to him and his contemporaries, you know, he's older than me, but um, I, I'm, I've never considered myself to be elite or professional or anything like that. It's always just been this progression of, I don't care what people think. I want to try. Well, you had a you had a mentor, effectively a skiing mentor in, in Aspen too, a climbing and skiing mentor, right? And I'm trying to remember his name, the guy who would who would hang off of his deck w w in his underwear in the middle of the winter, right? It was a guy named Fritz Stomberger, and, and Fritz was older than us, but Fritz was an Aspen-based European. He was German. And he was an incredible climber, high altitude climber. And he moved to Aspen and he fell in love with, with skiing. And he started to ski the Elk Peaks around here. Then in 1964, he managed to climb with his ski gear up to 24,000 feet on Cho Yu, a peak in Tibet. Then he went to the summit. He didn't haul the skis up to the summit, but he came back. And for a long time, that was a high altitude ski record. And we used to watch Fritz uh, running up Aspen Mountain in the middle of winter with shorts on, no shirt, and clumps of snow in his hands to train for the altitude. And, and he was 
really an inspiration to us because um, we, we were also introduced to mountaineering when we were in about kindergarten because Jim Whitaker, who was the first American to climb Everest, was friends with my dad. And he gave us the book, Americans on Everest. And I, I mean, we still have that book just from looking at the pictures. You can, the, the, the pictures are worn out from where our little fingers would turn them over. We couldn't even read, obviously. And we're looking at those pictures. And then we see this guy, Fritz. And then we learn that he's not only doing what Jim was doing, but he's taking skis. And so at a very young age, the, the seeds were planted about mountaineering and skiing peaks and so forth. And um, it, it really was inspirational to us. And um, we, you know, it wasn't necessarily inspirational at the time. We just knew that we wanted to be like that. Did you um, adopt any of Fritz's training techniques? Oh yeah, I mean, he was famous for running up Aspen Mountain, summer and winter. And um, to this day, I run up Aspen Mountain during the summer at least twice a week. Yeah, it's 3,300 vertical feet. And, and in the winter, I'm constantly skinning up the ski hills. I mean, we just have a huge advantage living in Aspen because we can, you know, before work, I can go and run up Aspen Mountain and ski down, or I can go, you know, up the snowmass ski area and go back to Baldy, which is 13,000 feet. You know, and I can do any of that stuff in, you know, an hour or two and, and then come to work. And, and he took advantage of the local environment. You know, he had to work just like everybody else. And he, he took advantage by taking an hour here or two hours there and just getting in as good a shape as he possibly could. But I mean, Fritz was he was a monster in the mountains. He was just he was tough and we wanted to be tough. We wanted to be like Fritz. And because it's the cold too, it's the it's the running up the mountain, but it's being cold. I mean, I even think about that clicking into your skis where you can't feel your fingers, you can't feel your toes. I mean, I mean, I've had enough ski races where I've thought, okay, I'm not sure I'm completely on top of my game right now because I'm just flat out cold. How much of that plays into your training because you have to you have to get yourself, you have to stress yourself before you get there. Yeah, it's, 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 it's mind, body, spirit. You have to acclimate on all levels. The physical one is, is huge. And, um, you know, not so much now at age 57, but when I was young, I mean, the worse the weather was, the more we wanted to get out and, and locally experience it just to acclimate to the cold. You can acclimate to the cold. I mean, I always tell the story, our big thing now is climbing and skiing in the Himalaya in the winter. Nobody's ever done that. And we were on this peak Mustagata, which has never been climbed, including by us in the winter. And I mean, the, the temperature on the top of the peak was minus hundred. We know that because they had a weather station on it. And where we were was about minus 60. And, and then all of a sudden one day, uh, a warm spell blew in and it was only 10 below and we're running around base camp in turtlenecks. I mean, you, so you, you definitely acclimate and, and, and it's um, the other aspect that Fritz taught me was you can control how your body reacts to the cold. And he, he developed a mantra. I read it in, in one of the uh, books somewhere where when, when he was out on a big peak, 
and it was super cold, he would mentally tell himself, bring it on cold, bring it on, make me as cold as you can. And he would just embrace the cold. And I can't tell you how many times I've been out on a ridge or in the wind or in a snowstorm saying, I just love, love it. I embrace the cold, bring it on more. And, and, and it makes you mentally tough and it makes you physically tough. And I don't know if you can actually increase circulation, but I know that mentality has warmed my hands and toes more than a few times. So I, I you know, I, I don't know the power of the brain or whatever, but um, he, he was, he was a tough, he was as tough as a box of rivets. Well, that's, I mean, I was actually just listening to something today where they were talking about the perception of pain actually happens in the brain as opposed to in the body. It's our interpretation of it. So, so you, Fritz, might well have been onto something. When you ski, as you're going up, do you map out where you're going to ski? Because it's got to be easy to get lost effectively and remember, am I here? Am I not? I mean, when we'd run downhill, right? I mean, this is like a two-mile course and you're memorizing the course and there are times in that first training run or whatever, you're like, uh-oh, well, where am I here? So yeah. this is a much, much bigger deal. It, it is, and, and, and we're still, we go by the old school adage that we will generally not ski anything in those big peaks or even, even around here in the Alps. We generally will not ski anything that we have not climbed. And, 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 and the reason for that is because, especially when you get into glaciated environments, um, you, you're, when you're skiing down, you're not roped up. When you're, you're climbing up, you're on a rope. You're either on belay or you're just on a rope for glacier travel so that if someone falls in a slot, they, you hold them back. When you're skiing, you know, generally we're not on a rope. Sometimes you get on a rope if it's really crevasse, but, but that's not fun skiing. And so, um, you want to know where those slots are. You, you bring tomato, bamboo tomato sticks with flags on them, wands. You wand the trail. You can always see the tracks generally unless it's ice. But you want to know the terrain intimately before you, you start skiing it. So we generally ski what we, only what we climb. Only what you climb and only what you've marked. So And, and, and marked. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. How has your evolution, because I mean, because this is like, this is some amazing stuff, but it's also some crazy stuff to think that you get on Everest and, and it's, and it's icy and you're like, okay, well, it's icy and we're going to make some turns and, and, and hopefully stick with it and not fall for thousands of feet. Yeah. If you do fall, how has your evolution with the mountain, with other climbers, with yourself, how has that, how has that changed? Well, I mean, using my big, you know, probably the stupidest ski descent that I ever did, uh, North Ridge of Everest. The North Ridge is this steep ridge um, and, and it falls off to, to the glacier thousands of feet on both sides. And, and it's steep enough to where it was fixed. So there was a rope the whole way up it. And we got out there and we clicked into our skis and we're nervous and uh, it's just so icy. And um, I think through experience, you just gain an intuition about what is doable 
and and what isn't doable. And I, I remember I skied up to where the fixed line was anchored and the idea was kind of, we're gonna clip into it. And I can't give you a detailed explanation of why I came to the conclusion, but as I skied up to that rope, all I can say is I was acutely aware of the fact that I knew that I could ski it without clipping in. And, and, and I knew that the ramifications were without question death if I was wrong, but there was just something in my gut after doing it for that many years that all of a sudden I pushed off and, and Steve and my cousin Jeremy Oates were there and they said, what are you doing? What are you doing? And I said, I got this, I can do this. And, and I was able to do it. Um, it. It was enhanced by the fact, I think that it was a really snowy whiteout type day. And I couldn't see the drops off to the wrong buck glacier on one side and the East wrong buck glacier to the other side. I couldn't see a whole lot of what was in front of me. But I think that that allowed me to intuitively sense that the skis would work despite the fact that it was so hard. And it was really kind of rough, hard ice and snow. Um, and, and, and so I slowly just made one turn, gained a little bit of confidence, switched directions. And, and that's when I said, I got this, guys, we can do this. Um, Did but they it, follow you? And then they followed me. Um, and, and, and that was, was a pretty exciting moment. And, you know, I say it was pretty stupid to make that decision. We were fine. We managed to do it. And, and so that validates the fact that it was doable. Um, but I, I don't think honestly that if I, and I know this because in 2007, when we went back, we discussed it. We said, if the conditions are like they were in 2003, we're roping up. We're, we're, we're going we're gonna to get on the rope. Um, that's the reason why I kind of criticized myself on it, but it ended well and we had fun. What was the drop off of the side? You said you couldn't see it. Is this dropping thousands of feet off the side? Oh, it's, it's, I describe it as a, a slanted barn roof. It's just this ridge that, you know, it's 2000, a 2000 foot ridge. And it, 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 you've got about 25 or 30 yards of skiable terrain and on, on the edges, both sides. I mean, it's vertical. It's vertical for, you know, three or 4,000 feet. I mean, you definitely, and it was just way too hard to self-arrest the fall. And um, it sounds crazy and it is, but knew we could do it. I mean, we had worked up to it. We had, a lot of experience skiing really difficult terrain to that point, but um, it it was uh, it was definitely a, a highlight as far as heart rate goes for for me. I mean that year, and then you know then we went back in two thousand seven and it was soft snow, piece of cake. It was it was still the same drop off. It was just yeah, you didn't want to fall, but you had at least a, a snowball's chance in hell at self arresting if you lost a ski or you fell. I mean you just can't fall. I mean it's I've never lost a ski you ski really softly and nobody in our group has with the exception of Jim hitting that picket which was in a, a relatively safe place nobody's ever taken a fall and and um, it's no fall whether or not the consequences are death 
or not, because the, the reality is if, if, if you get up on the North Ridge of Everest or any of those peaks and you blow a knee, that becomes life-threatening. It's, it, it's, it's dangerous for the obvious, but it's even more dangerous for the not so obvious. So that's why you modify and you stand on your skis and you use your skis as a tool. And I mean, I'm actually more comfortable on the edge of my skis than I am down climbing really steep terrain on crampons. You know, if you're rappelling, that's one thing, obviously that's totally safe, but down climbing that terrain in that, you know, 45 to 50 degree arena on, on hard snow, you can down climb it, but you have to be very careful. Um, I'd, I'd much rather weasel my way down it on the edge of a ski than on the points. Of my I, I have to tell you, just listening to your story, I feel a heightened sense of awareness. I feel, I feel the nerves. I mean, just listening to this is, 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 yeah, I, I'm as safe as I can be here, but I feel like I'm there on the mountain with you. Well, and, and, and part of that, again, it goes back to the, the progression. Um, I like a thrill. I don't like being scared in those mountains. I hate it. I, I, I do everything possible to avoid it. And, and, and that was a description of one ski descent in thousands that, that led up to it. So um, if, if something is so terrifically dangerous that it's just more obvious than it was when I made the decision to ski down the, the North Ridge that day. Well, we just simply find a, a, another slope to ski or we, we just don't do it. it it's, it's, it's hard to explain that to people because it is pretty ridiculous, you know, when you're, you're telling isolated stories or, or, or stuff like that. But, but Again, th that group of guys, especially Steve and, and Jim, we're, we're all brothers. I mean, Steve is my identical twin brother, and, and Jim is my, without question, he grew up a block away from me, and we've been friends our entire lives. I mean, he's a, a brother from a different mother, and, and, you know, the synergy that you get from that, knowing that you've got two other guys that are looking out for you, that are helping you make the decisions, a huge part of our success and and it's a huge safety net because i don't want to watch my identical brother get killed nor does jim and and vice versa what's your respect for the mountain like your your respect for the mountain and your respect for the for your community for your for your team because you said at one point there was a there was a peak that you said that's it i'm not going and the rest of the team went and you felt like you'd abandoned the the team, right? So how does, how do you reconcile that? The team, you, you as an individual and the mountain? Well, I mean, if you stand at the foot, even the peaks around here, I get the butterflies before I go out climbing and skiing even around here. But when I'm standing at the foot, like I was just at the foot of a, a 6,000 meter peak last month. And, and they're not butterflies in your stomach, they're hornets. And, and it's, I've always, I've tried to eliminate that and you just can't. So there, the, the respect for those mountains is just for our, our group is just at, 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 at the next level. And, and when you consider that and you consider the fact that you've chosen to 
head into these environments with with other people that you love, respect is enhanced even even more. And and on that peak that you were just talking about, it was a peak called Sahama. It's the highest peak in Bolivia. It's uh, twenty two thousand feet and. I, I got to the base of that peak and mentally and physically, it was a steep ice climb for about 1500 feet. And it didn't look like there's any skiing. And I was just, for a variety of reasons, I was just tired and I walked away and, and Steve and Jim didn't say a word. And that pissed me off because they didn't try and bend my arm into let's just give it a shot. Let's just try. So I walked away and I look back and I see these dots climbing up and, a little bit further and they're a little bit higher and and then it dawned on me it's like this is freaking dangerous and what if one of those guys gets hurt or god forbid even killed and i wasn't there to prevent it and 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 i turned around and i went back to that peak and and it was a turning point in my career because for the first time in about a decade i started climbing and skiing for a reason other than myself and and th that that signifies in my mind the reality that um, when you're out there with your brother and your best friend, there's a lot more going on than just climbing and skiing a slope, getting a first this, that, or the other thing. Um, I, I really started to see the value in that team and the synergy, and and the success was the the the. the Success that I had achieved, the arrow wasn't pointing at me in my mind for the first time. It was pointing at the fact that the reality is, is that I couldn't have done any of this without Steve and Jim. And that was the first time that I really experienced that. And, and that was a really humbling experience. Is that the evolution of a climber? I mean, when you talk about 8,000 meter peaks, people often say it's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when you know, that there's going to be something that's catastrophic. Do, do you have to evolve as a climber to be able to understand who you are and, and your relationship to the mountain and your respect for the mountain, your humility, these kinds of things? It, it's a huge evolution and it's really important because, I mean, let's be honest. I mean, the vast majority of people, me included, when you start venturing into those those high popular peaks, um, you, you you become obsessed with the peak. And, and the longer that you do this stuff, you realize that mountaineering and ski mountaineering, it, it has very little to do with the peak. I mean, it's important and it's, you know, it's fun. For us, our niche was 5,000, 8,000 meters. Well, you got to go to certain places to to experience that, but you start to understand that it has very little to do with peak. It has everything and only thing to do with me, and and what am I capable of of doing? And and you know how am I going to handle the hurdles? How am I going to handle the environment? And you know I used to hear Reinhold Messner. He's obviously the the preeminent mountaineer in history and. He said, mountaineering is a journey of learning about yourself. It's not about learning about climbing. It's not about learning about the height of the mountain or, or what it's like. It's about a, a, a learning something about yourself. What are you capable of mentally and physically and spiritually? And, and 
um, I started to go through that evolution on that on on that specific peak, and it was just a beautiful thing. You know, the the ramifications of it were just enormous in my career. How do you reconcile that? Because for you, there's the 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 difference between between an obsession and a passion, but then you're also balancing that against well, we have some sponsors that have helped us get to the mountain and given us this opportunity. And it's easy to look at the sponsors and say, the objective is to get to the top, right? That that's, that's, that's the definition of success and not necessarily the experiential success that, that Reinhold was talking about. So how do you, how do you balance the idea of, of obsession with passion and the reality? I guess, you know, I, I, I think that having spent a lot of my career being obsessed and then that, that, that peak was a transformation where I finally started to understand passion and, and it, it really, the, the reconciliation is really easy. I mean, first off, when, you, when, whenever we were dealing with sponsors, we had great sponsors. And we worked our butts off. We did the best that we could, but we made it perfectly clear to them. We don't care about the summit. We, we don't care about, that was never an influence. Sponsorships never. And, and that's a, a unique thing too, because a, a lot of people rely on that stuff for their livelihood and, and they, they have that pressure. Get that. We had other careers that allowed us to not be professional climbers, even though you know we did well with climbing. Um, so that was never a, a pressure. But the 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 overall feeling that I got on that peak Sahama, first time I noticed the blue sky, and I noticed the Atacama Desert below me, and I, I truly started to enjoy climbing and skiing for exactly and only what it was. I mean, it, it was the highest peak in, in Bolivia and we wanted to get that feather because no American had ever skied it. Only one other person had ever skied it before us. That was a driving force for me to go on that expedition. It was just padding my resume. I was obsessed. And, and when I got there and I started climbing up that ice, I mean, all of that just fell away. I didn't care anymore. And, and I think that, that the fact that for the first time, I, I'd never gone to the big that I'm done, I'm out of here. I'd never done that. I'd never moderated even remotely like that. And I think the fact that I walked away and I still realized that I still realized that I was alive and that I was um, able to climb and, and, and that I was able to have a, a a really genuinely great time on that mountain with a feeling of well-being that I hadn't experienced in a long time. Th that was, I knew I was at a crossroads. I knew I was at a crossroads where I was either going to continue doing this stuff for a brief moment. I decided I wasn't going to start doing it. And then as I got on that peak and as the next day, as I got to the top and I skied down, I had a, a sense of well-being um, that was I was very conscious of, and, and, and I developed a mantra too. I developed a mantra on that because my initial reaction was to go and protect 
Steve and Jim, not that they needed it. But in my mind, that's the reason why I turned around. I started to think about somebody else. And I developed a mantra on all expeditions after that. I'm going to be the best. I don't care about climbing. I don't care about skiing. I'm going to be the best damn teammate that I can because that made me feel good. And um, it worked. And, you know, there's even some science behind it. I mean, I've been studying brain science. You know, there's a guy, Jason Selk, who has really studied it. He's a sports psychologist. And when you're talking about the difference between obsession and passion, obsession is a state, and you can accomplish a lot with obsession. I did in the first half of my career. But, but when you're obsessed, you set this goal out here, and you focus on that goal to the point that you do everything you can you sacrifice and you just listen to the language of typical young people in the Olympic profiles. They sacrifice, they work their ass off. They, they just bust tail to, to, in an effort to attain that goal. And, and you got to understand that a goal, whether it's a summit or the Olympics or whatever, it wouldn't be worth setting as a goal if it didn't have probably as good a chance of failure as success. And, and so they concentrate on that. It becomes a fight. And, and, and literally, the goal becomes a problem. And, and when people concentrate on how they sacrifice, and they use the language, I sacrifice so much, I work so hard. It was your brain actually, from evolution, starts to secrete um, cortisone. Cortisone is the fight or flight thing that allows people to concentrate on one thing. When people are obsessed, they get a lot of cortisone in their body so that they can concentrate on one thing. They completely forget about what's out here. And the problem with that is that cortisone is not necessarily the most healthy stuff that you can put in your body. It's actually toxic in, in high doses. And when you spend you know, six months, six years, 10 years constantly living under the, 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 the shadow of, of, of that hormone, it physically takes a toll on your body. Now you contrast that with being in a state of passion. And I think this is why I had the feeling of well-being: is that when you're in a state of passion, you're still sacrificing, you're still working your tail off, but you're, you're living in the moment and you, you are consciously aware of the people around you. You're, you still have a goal, but but when you're in a state of passion, it allows you to concentrate on problem solving here and now. It allows you to forget about the goal. I know the mountain is going to be there another day if I can't get up it, so I'm not going to worry about the goal. You start concentrating on problems, problem solving and the positive things that you've accomplished. And and the 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 number one generator of of um, serotonin in your body, which is the well-being hormone that you get is positive thinking. And according to, to this doctor, problem solving. Problem solving gives people a great deal of satisfaction. And, and so I don't think it's ironic that when I look at some of the things that I accomplished after the big name peaks, Everest, Shishpangman, this and that, that there are a lot of peaks that I consider to be my big feathers that nobody's ever heard of because I was under the influence of this total passion where I didn't give a shit if I got to the top or skied anything. I mean, it's not to say that I wasn't happy when I did, 
but I was so happy just to be out there and to be with Steve and Jim and to try and get them. I made it a goal to try and do everything I could to get them to the top. And it was selfish because I knew if they got to the top, I'd get to the top. But it, it, it gave me this overall sense of just pure happiness and joy. And when I started to look at things like my training or my diet, um, because it was so joyful, there was no more sacrifice. There was no more hard work. I'm still working my ass off. In fact, because I'm feeling so good and I'm getting this high from what I'm doing, I'm actually working out harder. I'm getting stronger. I'm experiencing this, this pure joy. And so it's the, 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 the contrast between the, the obsession and the passion is just huge. And, 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 you know, so then how do you develop that passion? And, and that's the big question. That's kind of what, you know, at age 57, I'm trying to figure out. And so what you're saying is the, the passion is the, is the, commitment to the moment the commitment to solving the problems to the little things along the way that that will eventually lead to the big thing potentially but without concerning yourself with the exactly big thing. it's 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 problem solving here and now and and when you're obsessed you know, and you and I spoke about my my father's careers as as a, a Olympic ski racer. I mean, as a little kid, I mean, I can't tell you how many times I heard him tell me my ski racing career was a complete waste of talent. And and for a little kid who idolized his dad, that was really tough. But it made sense because he died about 19 years ago, and 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 the year before he died, I was on the lift, and he said, Mike. If I would have had the passion to ski that I have today, back when I was racing in the Olympics, I would have won that medal. But he didn't win a medal. And, and that was catastrophic, catastrophic. And when you're obsessed and you have this goal out there and you don't reach it, it's, it's catastrophic for a lot of people. If you don't reach the goal when you're passed through your passion, it doesn't matter. You still had a great trip or you still found that sense of satisfaction and happiness it's just a, a a way better way to live i mean and i really think you know you look at at you know as from my career as a cpa and i look at my clients that are content and happy i mean the 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 level of income has very little to do with it the clients that are happy just really enjoy what they're doing they're not fixated on how to skin the cat to make something more efficient or or to make more money or, or anything like that. They, they love what they're doing. They're being efficient because they love what they're doing. And, and, and they're, they're the successful clients that I have. The, the, the ones that are obsessed, some of them are super, you know, by pop culture standards, successful. You know, they got $100 million in the bank and, 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 and yet they're miserable. And, and they're miserable because they, they, they achieve their success through obsession. I mean, being in, in a, and I know this from my career, being obsessed is really uncomfortable. It's, you're just in a constant fight to preserve your ego. And, and it, you're just constantly fighting as opposed to really enjoying, you know, what you're good at. I mean, I'm not saying that obsessed people are not, cannot get really 
good at something, they can. They obviously, they do. Most Olympians do. Um, but I really believe just from really studying and looking at profiles of Olympians, a lot of them just become obsessed. And, and we all do it. I mean, I was obsessed to be a baseball player. I was obsessed to, to be a, a, a ski mountaineer. And, and, and later in life, I, I, I transformed by no conscious effort to, to, to what I know is definitively passion. And it's just, there is a contrast there. And, and it's just true passion is, is, I don't want to say it's rare, but it's definitely not the norm. And um, so the, the, the question is, you know, what do you do to, 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 how do you know when you have passion and, and what can you do to, to, to find it? It's really interesting. And let me see if I can, if I, if I understand it, as you're saying it, the, the pat, that obsession effectively is having this big goal. And there's only one definition of success that you, that you reach that, that one goal. And, and if you don't reach that goal, not only is that a failure to reach the goal, but everything you did to get there is a failure. Where passion on the other side is that everything you're doing to get there is the reward for going along and hopefully reaching, reaching that final goal. Exactly. You know, I used my baseball career. I mean, I was a lot like a lot of kids that played baseball. I wanted to play Division One baseball. It was my goal from T-ball. And I stated on it. And I worked hard and I trained. And um, when I look back at my high school baseball career, I can't remember. I can't remember it being fun. I can't even really remember it. But I remember every single mistake. I remember dropping a fly ball. I remember over, I mean, these are in my mind's eye. I can see these things. I was, you know, I was 16 years old and I can remember mistakes that I made. And, 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 and the, the funny thing is, is that I succeeded and I, I played division one baseball, but I got cut two years. And so, you know, I don't need to go through the whole story of how I eventually made it, but when I made it, it was like, wow, I have everything to gain and nothing to lose. And I stopped working my ass off. I, 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 I still practice hard and everything, but I remember everything about my two years playing division one baseball because I just developed this passion. And, 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 you know, honestly, when I made that team, I was nowhere near a division one baseball player, but because I, I, loved it and I was having so much fun I put in the time and I put in the work and I developed into a, a a legitimate division one baseball player but it was only because of passion and so the point there is that you can get far with obsession you can get a lot further through passion well it's when you tap into your genius isn't it the passion part of it because it's sort of like what I think of as the little kid the little kid out in the backyard playing for fun, doing whatever, and you're, you're able to create, you don't have those obstacles, the, you know, sort of the opposing muscles, everything wants to get involved and you're, you're free, you're free to create, you're free to find that sense of genius. And, and yeah, that is, that it is. So it's really interesting to hear, you know, at 57 years old, 
that you're coming to this realization? I mean, obviously, it sounds like you came to it a, a bit earlier than 57 years old, but you're really, yeah, really relishing it. What would be the thing that you would tell your 20 something year old self starting out with this idea of climbing mountains, conquering, which because mountains, oftentimes people think of it as like you're conquering, you're conquering your fear, you're conquering the biggest obstacle that's out there, you're conquering something that nobody else could even imagine. What would you tell your 20 year old self? Well, and that's the that's the burning question that I have going on in my mind a lot over the last several years. And I think it comes down to a, a, a few key concepts. And I mean, one of, the, one of them is moderation. Like when I stepped away from that peak, that was, I was moderating. I, I, I finally had the ability to step away and that opened up my entire world. Um, I think the other two, there are three other elements. And I think that, um, the, 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 the two main ones are humility and gratitude. Um, and, and I think, you know, starting with gratitude, what I would have told myself back then is have gratitude for everything, for even the mundane things. And I use the example, the ability to go and turn on your faucet at the sink to get a, 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 a fresh glass of water. That's a big deal in the rest of the world. Have gratitude for even the mundane. And the reason why you need to have that gratitude is because big gifts come your way. If you have gratitude for the mundane, you, there's going to be contrast. You're going to know that's an incredible gift that I've been given. Uh, you know, I have the ability to climb and ski at altitude. I do well at altitude. That's a gift. Um, so you have to have gratitude and, and you have to have humility. And humility, I think, comes from the fact that um, I think whether you call it God or Mother Nature or karma or whatever, I think you have to develop an acknowledgement that there's something bigger going on around here. And, and for me, it's God. I'm a Christian and... Um, I started to I start to realize that everybody's been given a mission and everybody's been given the gifts to accomplish that mission. And if you're if you're not humble and, and, and you don't have the ability to realize that I didn't go out there and climb and ski all those peaks, I was given a gift to do that. I was, the, the, the creator gave me the gifts to do that. I didn't do it on my own. I didn't, you know, uh, I used free will to accept the gift and then I took advantage of it. And, and that's the reason why I climbed those mountains. I mean, I was given the gift to climb and ski at high altitudes. Uh, you know, the, the, the broker on Wall Street was given the gift to be able to, you know, make great trades to make a lot of money everybody's been given those gifts. And if you're not humble, you'll, you'll, you'll miss out on that. And you'll think that life is up to you and that you are alone in that scenario. And, and, and so much of this stuff has been given to us. And if we have gratitude, when those gifts come by, you'll be able to see those gifts and you'll be able to appreciate them and you'll be able to leverage them to use them to your advantage. Um, and, and, and really, you know, so the, the, the big question in my mind was, well, 
lot of people are going to have a hard time acknowledging that there's a, a, a power out there or something like that. So why would this power give us the gifts? And 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 the the reason in my mind is very spiritual. I, I don't believe that I'm I'm changing the world by going out there and climbing and skiing those peaks, but by taking advantage of the gifts that I've been given to go out and do that. I know for a fact, I know when I post stuff on social media, I know when people watch those films, I know it inspires people. I know that I have an ability to tell my story, whether it's in a film or in a book or here on a podcast that can potentially inspire somebody to find their gifts and to, to make their lives better. And, and so you know, I always kind of laugh. I mean, one of my favorite climbing books is a book by a French guy called Conquistadors of the Useless. I mean, climbing and skiing, pretty useless, arguably very selfish. And, and, and so for a guy that has spent, you know, over 30, almost 40 years out climbing and skiing and, and, and found success, it, it, the burning question was, why did this happen to me? And, and, and further to that, what can I do with this to, to help make the world even just slightly better than before I got here? Do you have an answer for that? Because I feel like I have an answer after watching you because I feel like climbing the mountains, skiing these, these major mountains, there can't be anything more spiritual because you are on that razor's edge between life and death. And these realities become that much more profound, right? The idea of the idea of your humility, the idea of your gratitude, uh, you know, whether you call it karma or not. I mean, you're you're in a place where you really think that there that that karma is 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 important. Sometimes in our everyday lives, it doesn't seem nearly as important, but when when you're when you're making the bets that you're making effectively in climbing a mountain, the karma is that much more important. And and where you believe in the in the spiritual, part. there is an element of of spirituality involved in the actual activity that I'm doing. From the standpoint, when you you go through a phase in 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 this activity where. There's a lot of hype and there's a lot of bravado and there's a lot of excitement. You pick the objective and you pack your gear and you do all the training. And, and, and then you, you feel small because you get on that airplane and what you bring with you is all you got. Then you get to a, you know, a place like Kathmandu or La Paz, Bolivia or Arequipa, Peru, and you're in a completely different culture. You feel small. Then you get in the Jeep and you go to the trailhead and, the, you know, the llamas or the yaks come and you load them up and you feel really small. Then you trek for a day or two and you get to the base of that peak and you are out there. You are out there. There's no rescue. There's nobody that cares about your well-being and, and you become even more insignificant. Then you look at the peak and, and, and you, you just have an acute self-awareness of how unimportant you are in the scope of what's going on in the world. But for me, it's spiritual because it 
you, you take these gifts and, and you have the gift to be there. You know you can do this safely. You know that, that for me, there's just this intuitive feeling that somebody has my back beyond my brother and Jim. There, there's something bigger going on here. And, and, and I'm supposed to do this. I know that I'm supposed to take my gifts and I know that I'm supposed to use them to the best of my ability and, and I know that I can do this. And, and so you go from this, this waterfall of this bravado down to feeling scared and nervous and anxious, and you slowly start to climb that mountain and you realize you really understand, wow, this is so freaking cool. I have been given all the tools, all the gifts, all the experience to be able to come and contemplate climbing this thing and skiing down it. And th th that's how it becomes spiritual. It it's like, thank you. You know, I tell the story just uh, uh, a couple of years ago, I, I got done uh, skiing this peak in the Villa Canote in Peru, and it's a 40 mile range. And we had no plans for, you know, climbing or skiing anything specifically. We said, let's just go to the, the start of it and we'll walk the 40 miles. We knew that there were some 6,000 and a bunch of 5,000 meter peaks. And we came about halfway through, we're on the glacier and we see this peak. And it's like, oh my God. And, and it was everything that we expected. It was high, it, was, it had the, the, the thrills, it was steep. And then the lower slopes had a foot of powder. And I'm telling you, the next day walking away from that peak, I, I took some video of it and I put the camera down and, and the thought that came to my mind was, oh, my God, you must love me so freaking much to, to not only be here to see this, but to have the ability to go and touch it, to climb it and ski it. it, it it's when you follow your passion, it's a manifestation for a direct manifestation for how much our creator loves us. And, and you can call that creator God, you can call, you know, like I said, whatever you want to call it, but you have to be very humble to accept that and to, and to believe it. And um, I, I love your analogy of childlike because that is from a theological point of view. And I, I read a lot of theology as well as climbing and stuff like that. From a theological point of view, in every major religion, childlike is, that's an important concept for the exact same reason that you brought it up and that I'm, I'm acknowledging it now. I mean, it's a huge concept. Being childlike is pure. And, and when you get to the base of those peaks, you're about as pure as you can be. Mike, I think that's the perfect place to stop. The, the bottom of the peaks is as pure as you can be. Uh, thank you so much for joining us, for, for talking us through what it's like to climb and ski some of the biggest mountains in the world. Well, I, I appreciate the opportunity and I'm a big fan of yours and, and I, I really appreciate it. Ah, this is awesome. Well, thank you so much. And I look forward to seeing you in person sometime soon. To all of you who've tuned in, thank you so much for tuning in. I hope that you've enjoyed it. Again, the greatest gift you can give us is to tell your friends about it, to tell your friends to tune in, that we'll have another great guest next week. And Please like us, please follow us, and we'll keep bringing you some great stuff. Take care. Thanks. Thank you for joining us. Please subscribe to Chris Whiteout Living It for more stories on the adaptive community, the Paralympics, 
artists, athletes, entrepreneurs, experts in the experience of being human. Also follow us on Spotify, Apple, Facebook, and Instagram. I look forward to seeing you next week.